Good morning. How's everybody? All right, we're not sure yet. Okay. Well, that gives me something to work with. Well, I appreciate last week Russ uh, filling in for me. Uh, as you guys know, I had a, a work conference, and then we always turn those into a little family vacation. So we went to the mountains without you. It was wonderful. Uh, so we appreciate you guys letting us be gone for a week. Uh, as we get started, if you want to outline, there's some in the back, or there's some, some sheets you can take notes on, or the outlines in the Faith Life app if you have that downloaded. Um, uh, last week, Russ went through Exodus chapter 24, um, where this is, you know, we've been moving through the book of Exodus, and this is the moment where God finally makes the covenant with Israel. You know, we've talked a lot about how uh, God is doing all of this work from the time of original sin with Adam and Eve, trying to move humanity back to a, a right relationship with him and he's going through this process of freeing them from slavery this thing feels shorter for some reason hold on oh well David didn't lower it I'm just saying he's better than you <laughs> there we go now I can see it was my eyeballs that was the problem so so God is moving Exodus or moving Israel through this story that we've been studying in the book of Exodus moving them from freedom of slavery and into a right relationship with him. So last week, Russ picked up for me in chapter 24 where God finally makes this covenant. After that happens, we, we're going to see, and we're going to pick up a little bit of, at the end of chapter 24 in a minute, but then Moses goes up onto the mountain uh, following God's instruction where he stays for a period of time. And we're going to pick up today in chapter 32. I know we're skipping way ahead, uh, but I, I've been looking at and talking with Russ and with the other elders um, about you know, how do we deal with, because all the, the stuff between 25 through 31 is God telling Moses, make the Ark of the Covenant, and it needs to have these dimensions and these shapes, and then make the lampstand, and this is the dimensions, and this is the shape. And then after we get through this little piece of narrative that happens in 32 and, and 33, then it's Israel actually making all of those things. And it's nearly verbatim, what God said to do, and then what they did do. Uh, and so it, it, for us in our application of joining God to set people free, um, I just felt like the Lord was saying we didn't need to spend a lot of time in that. So we're going to skip past that today. We're going to fast forward. And we're going to go straight to chapter 32. But just to kind of review the things that Russ said last week to get our minds back in, into what God is doing for Israel. He, Russ talked about three different things last week. He said that in that passage that one of the things that God was wanting to do in Israel is to give them a right view of His majesty. We see that description of God himself and where he's standing. And, and Russ was talking about how important it is for us to take time to sit before the throne of God and to, to ponder, to see, to be in awe of who he is and what he has done for us. The second thing he talked about is that an experience with God does not vaccinate us from sin. And I love that he brought that out in the passage. You know, our experiences with God need to be ongoing. We need to be constantly, moment by moment, abiding in Him. And that is what helps us with the sin problem. It's not a one-time experience and then forever we don't have to worry about sin. And we know that from our own lives. But sometimes it's good to be reminded of that. And we're going to jump back on that for just a minute today and, and look at a few more things. And then the third thing is that understanding the seriousness of, of committing to God. In this passage in chapter 24, we see Israel say together, these things that the Lord has said, we will do them. And then we, of course, because we're on this side of the story, we know that they don't. But Russ talks about how important it is for us as believers to, to count the cost of what it means to be a follower of Christ. So I love last week where, where Russ brought uh, us in that passage as God led. And, and we see this slow buildup through the entire story of Exodus, through the story of the Israelite people. 
Everything that God has done leads up to this moment in chapter 24. And all of that, again, to restore our relationship. And so we get to the point here in chapter 24 where it's like the big ask, right? So God is saying, he's doing all this build up. He's giving them all the details. And then he says, okay, you, here it is. It's laid out before you. Do you want in or not? And so for me, like as I've been thinking about that last week and this week, it's like, uh, for me, it's like when you buy a car or buy a house, right? Like you kind of get a handshake agreement with either the realtor or the car dealer and you agree on a price and then you go in the back to sign the paperwork, right? And so Moses going up on the mountain is literally the going and doing the paperwork part. Mo- the, the Israelites have agreed, yes, we're going to do this. And so God is going to Moses uh, to, to get that paperwork done. Okay, so today we're going to, I want to start back in chapter 24. We're going to read a few verses out of there and then we're going to jump to 32. But the first point I want to make today, and this is part of the reason I want to I grab a piece out of 24 just to get our minds back in the story. Point number one I want to make today is that a vigilant pursuit of God is paramount in our lives. Okay, a vigilant pursuit. In, in other words, a, a, a walk with God is not just something that we're doing on the side, but it is our goal, it is our purpose, it's what we're striving for. So let's look at Exodus 24, verses 12 through 18. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with assistant Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you, and behold, Aaron and Hur are here with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up to the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And then skipping ahead to to verse 1 in chapter 22. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Moses goes on the mountain with God. And I love the imagery that, that we're left with in chapter 24 that, that this mountain is, is blazing with fire. In my mind, when I think of Mount Sinai, you know, I just came from the, from the Ozark Mountains. That's not the kind of mountain we're talking about. I see in my mind, like I've never been to Mount Sinai, but in my mind, I've seen pictures of it. I'm picturing like the Rocky Mountains, right? Like you look up and it's just awe-inspiring of how big the mountain is. That whole thing is covered with cloud and with fire, and that's what Israel is experiencing, right? Okay, so now before we start judging Israel about their actions that we see in verse 1, let's let's take a moment and look at ourselves. I want you to ask yourself this question. This is not rhetorical. Don't say it out loud, but I want you to ask yourself, how often do you lose sight of what God is doing in the middle of your life? How often in the middle of life, when God is in the middle of a work, do we lose sight of that? We are so quick to get bogged down in life. And if you're from Louisiana, you know what it means to get bogged down. If you're not from Louisiana, that's when you take a vehicle or your feet and you go into mud and you can't get out. That's what it means to be bogged down. And that's the the imagery I want you to have today is we get busy in life and we get bogged down in our circumstances and we get stuck. How many times this week... Our, you know, we've been talking about since January this idea that we are called to join God to set people free. How many times just this week have you thought about that call? 
to set people free. This is a real question. We need to answer this for ourselves. If we're not thinking about that, what is it that's taking our attention? What is causing us to lose focus? Have you made our collective call as a people of Christ a priority in your life? Some of the things that take our attention are important. If you're at home and your toddler's running through the house with a knife in their hand, that needs your attention, right? There are things in our lives that are important that happen that require our attention right there in the moment. But some of the things that we allow to steal our attention are not important. I don't know about you, but it's so easy for me to get lost in the endless scroll of Facebook and Twitter and Reddit, right? You just, all of a sudden, you just wasted a half an hour. There's so many things in our life like that. Whatever your, whatever your vice is, that one is one of mine. All my stuff just disappeared. Bear with me a moment. There we go. I'm back. So Israel is standing before the mountain. We need to be vigilant about pursuing God because the enemy is going to be vigilant in pursuing us. We need to be vigilant because the enemy is vigilant. The enemy is constantly trying to steal our attention, to steal our time. Look, we, we, can't, we can't allow ourselves to make excuses. Okay, I know this is very pointed and we dove right into this this morning. This is heavy. Okay, But this is where we are in the, in the passage. We're about to be at the end of the, the, this study, right? Like we're getting real close to the end. I don't know, we may have a week, maybe two at the most left. And have, have we joined God? Have, have I joined God? I need to ask myself that. But you need to ask yourself the same question. Have you joined God? We cannot, we cannot make excuses anymore. As a culture, we are good at rationalizing things. Like if I see something on Amazon that I want, I am really good at rationalizing why I need that thing. Like it doesn't matter what it is. I can come up with a good reason, probably a list of reasons. We are good at that. But I'm afraid that we take that same rationalization. We say, God, I know you're telling me to do this thing, but here's all the reasons why I can't or I shouldn't or I don't. The point is, what we see happening in Israel um, is, is that they are standing at the mountain. There's fire and there's clouds and they don't go to God. Look at, look at verse 1 again. It says, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go for, before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. Look, it, Israel has a legitimate concern, right? Think about the number of people that died in the plagues in Egypt. Think about the fact that, that before they get to Mount Sinai, God tells Moses to set up a barrier and that if anyone crosses it, whether it be man or beast, they're going to die. That's a legitimate concern. Moses goes up to where God is, and I don't know, what if, what if Moses stepped up or messed up and stepped over the line and boom, God took him out? They don't know. It's legitimate, okay? But rather than trying to find out, they let, tear, they let fear take hold of them they jump to a conclusion and they demand action of Aaron. Instead of asking, instead of being patient, 
they take control. This is the very thing that causes us to stray from God's leadership. Those things that distract us in life, those emergencies, the, the stress of work or family or whatever it is, we, we let those things get us in a panic. And instead of bringing that stuff to God and asking for direction, we take control, we try to fix the problem. And, and what ends up happening is that instead of looking to God, who knows the answers to the problems that we have, we're trying to figure them out for ourselves. Things get uncomfortable, we get nervous or afraid, and instead of running to God, we run from God and create our own solution. I read a quote the other day that said something to the effect of, I want to be the kind of dad that when my kids get in trouble, they run to dad and not from dad. And I know I've got some changing to do in my life in order for that to be true. And I've shared with you guys before, I think it's Tozer talks about how maturity in faith is that when things go wrong, you run to God and not from God. So if we're spending time with God on a regular basis, abiding in Him, our natural response is going to be to run to God. But if we're not putting the time in, if we're not developing that relationship, that's not going to happen. If Israel really knew God, if they would have taken God up on His original offer, instead of saying, no God, we don't want any of that, you just talk to Moses and then Moses can tell us, they'd have been in a different situation as they're standing on the side of the mountain. They would have known what was going on. And the same is true for us. Knowing God by experience, being vigilant in our pursuit of Him is what's going to bring us peace during difficult times. Point number two. Our abiding in God needs to inform and determine our actions. Our abiding in God needs to inform and determine our actions. We, just like Israel, try to take an idea we see this happening in this, in this next passage. We're about to look at it. This is our favorite trick, right? When we want something, when we're trying to rationalize something, we'll, we'll take a thing that we want, we'll attach God's name to it, present it to people as if it is God's, and then what are they going to say about it? Right? You just said God said it, and how are they going to argue? Who can argue with that? Let me tell you who can argue with that. We can. Right? If someone comes to me and says, well, God said this thing, you know what my response is going to be? Hey, God, did you say that? Because I'm not feeling it. Or in the moment, the Spirit might go, yep, that's me. But we have the ability to do that because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. That, th this, this whole idea of us being able to tune into the Spirit is the reason that our church is structured the way it is. If you know the history of, uh, if there's a few of us in this building that go way back to the beginning, Right? And we know what happens when leadership is not in tune with the Holy Spirit, right? Like we've walked in that before. When God set up this, the gathering place, He called us to be elder-led for this very reason. We all have the same Holy Spirit inside of us. And if we're all asking the same question of the same Spirit, we're all going to get the same answer. Because that's how God operates. This is the system that, that he has and will continue to use to safeguard us from dissension. Look at verses 4 through 6. It says, And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. By, when he says he, he's talking about Aaron. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, capital L. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to, to play. Israel did not remove God from their worship. When it says that they were going to throw a feast 
as we look at some of the stuff we, we skipped over in that chunk, it talks about these holy feasts where they are to worship God. That is their intent. And so Aaron himself makes a golden calf, puts it before the people, calls on a holy feast, and says, we're going to worship this God along with the Lord. They added a calf to it and called it a God too. Why do we do that? Why does Israel? Why do we try to take something that's not God and equate it to God? I believe it goes back to the beginning. When we received the lie that God is not enough and we, helped, we made ourselves believe it. We say that God in of who He is is not enough for me. I need this other thing to add on to it. We become convinced that God isn't sufficient for my problem. He might be sufficient for somebody else's problem, but this thing that I'm going through is bigger than that. I want to point out something really obvious, okay? Do people still say, duh? Is that a thing? Is there a different word that people say? No? Okay. I would say notice here, but Russ hates it when he says that. See, I listen, all right? I want to point out something really obvious. Who's the one person in this passage who is not struggling with fear and uncertainty? Who's the one person? Go ahead, Luke. My boy. Moses. Why not? I'll tell you why. Because he's with God. He's not uncertain because he's standing in the presence of God. I'm going to give you a minute to think about that. I'll wait. Israel's not with God. Fear, uncertainty, anxiety. Moses is on the mountain with God. No fear. No uncertainty, no anxiety. Everyone else in this story is panicking. But no one speaks up. Nobody asks Aaron. Nobody asks her. Nobody asks God. They just said, well, I guess Moses is dead. God's not real. Let's make a calf. Makes total sense, right? You're laughing, but we do the same things. Right? We do. Life's getting hard. Instead of turning to God, we turn to our phone or a spouse or food or whatever. Listen, if fear, anxiety, uncertainty, if any of those things are holding you captive, the fix is being in the presence of God. I'm not talking about clinical issues, okay? There are people who have clinical issues that need help beyond that, okay? This is going to help, but there's bigger. I'm not, I'm not diminishing that in any way. But I'm saying in the course of normal life, if you are struggling, the answer to that struggle is always going to be God. The fact that Israel wasn't in God's presence is exactly why they're experiencing all those things. They were near God's presence, but they were not in God's presence. You living near someone who is actively involved in a relationship with God is not sufficient for you. You can't abide or grow in someone else's faith. You can't grow in your understanding of God because of what someone else is experiencing. Can those things encourage us? Absolutely. Are they what we need? Absolutely not. And here's the other thing. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. I'm going to hold that point. I will tell you this, that when we live vicariously through someone else, here's what happens. We put more stock in what that person says than what God says. We elevate that person to a level of priority that they shouldn't be. Next point I want to make is God's call to leadership doesn't make a person infallible. This is one of the things that Russ touched on last week. So I don't want to beat a dead horse, but this is a big part of the story. 
When we put someone else in place above God by relying on their relationship with God, we are setting them up for failure and we're setting ourselves up for failure. Because they can't be God. And you're asking them to. You can't live vicariously through me just like I can't live vicariously through you. It can feel good like that for a moment. But then something's going to happen in your life and God's not going to be speaking to me about it. And you're not listening to Him and you're going to be the one that's in, in, in the middle of it. Israel had their faith not in God but in the leaders that God gave them. Their trust was, was misplaced or it was in the wrong place. God certainly puts people in leadership over us. God put me here as the pastor. I am the pastor of this church. But God's intent is not for you to not go to Him and only go to me. His intent is for you to go to Him, for me to go to Him, and then us to do this relationship together. Look, I'm held responsible to God for your spiritual growth, but so are you. I'm so thankful that we are part of an elder-led church that I don't have to bear all that weight on my own, right? And I don't know how, like I know pastors, I've known pastors growing up that try to lead a church all on their own, and it, it, I just don't know how they could possibly stand the pressure. I think the, the root of many of the problems, and I'll just talk about the Southern Baptist Church because that's who we are, I think a lot of those problems that we're dealing with right now are because leadership is demanding autonomy or the church is refusing to step up. It's not always that the pastor is just a head case and wants all the authority. Sometimes it's just the church not being the church. Look, Israel under Aaron's supervision immediately breaks the first three commandments. The things they just agreed together that they would not do. They broke those three things. And the way this passage reads, it seems like some of the people came against Aaron demanding an idol. But either way, whether they were against him or they just went to him and it was his idea, either way, they placed all the burden of decision-making on Aaron. And based on Aaron's response, it seems like he didn't even try to counter them. The fault here is not on Aaron and her alone. The fault is on everybody. When I say her, I know I have an accent. H-U-R, it's a person, just to make that clear. Okay, look, all of us are susceptible to being swayed. Uh, from following God but we all need to be diligent in our daily pursuit of God to prevent those lies from working their way into our life and we believe them to be truth we also need to be willing to speak out to one another when they think when they think that you're missing the point like like and let me say that in a different way I'm counting on you guys that if I say something that's not scriptural or biblical that you're going to say hey will that thing you said I'm not so sure about that and let's have some conversation Right? Did you know that? I'm counting on that. But in the same way, if I hear you say something that's not biblical, I'm going to say, hey, let's talk about that. And it's not out of disrespect. It's out of love. It's because all of us are representing God. And I don't want to be an Aaron who goes, oh, that's, oh, you guys want that? Okay, let's just do it. And not talk to God about it. That's not the kind of leader I want to be, and it's not the kind of leader you want, right? Thank you, one person. I appreciate that. The next point I want to make is that interceding for others matters. Look at verse 11 through 14. It says, But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? 
Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars in the heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. God's response to Israel's breach of the covenant was enough to cause God to want to destroy them all. That's what this passage is saying. This was a big deal. But something very curious happens. Moses intercedes on Israel's behalf. And we'll see next week that Moses even goes as far as say, God, why don't you just take me out and let them live? That's some pretty awesome foreshadowing of what's to come. God has all the power and the authority to deal with us as he sees fit. And, and I don't know about you, but I can't blame God for being upset with Israel. They just said they wouldn't do these things that they just did. Great example of what this feels like, me identifying this, is the broken door out here. Right? I'm not going to lie. When David texted me Thursday, I was hot with anger. Okay, David, my text probably didn't read that way because I was careful about what I said. But I was not happy. We have spent so much time and energy and what little bit of money we have on loving the children in this community and they repay us by breaking the doors. Again. Right? I shared a post about this on Facebook on Friday night so you can go back and look at that later and get the details. But I want you to understand that I was mad. I was upset. And I think I was right in feeling frustrated, right? Okay? What's funny is that I had just brought this issue to the elders. If you read that Facebook post, you know that. Wednesday night, the day before they were broken, I felt led to share with the elders that I've been praying about this. And that God was telling us that we need to respond in a very specific way. With grace, love, mercy, and forgiveness. Look, I'll be honest. I was upset, and initially my prayer was for them, but it also transformed, and it came, became a prayer for you guys as well, and for myself, that God would change our hearts. Obviously, I want their hearts changed as well. If they knew Jesus, they probably wouldn't be breaking glass. I say that tongue-in-cheek because I knew Jesus when I was a kid, but I still broke glass, okay? But here's the thing. I got so upset about a broken door, right? Because I felt disrespected. I felt unloved, and, that's, and I, I show a lot of respect to those kids. I love those kids a lot. And you know what God said? Hey, Will, how often do you throw rocks at my doors? How often do you take a thing that I've been very clear about and go, ah, it's not important. God continually loves us, even in the middle of our sin, even in the middle of all of the things that we do wrong. God still loves us. And that's our call for this community. I was telling somebody this morning, we, we were talking about an elders meeting that, you know, for a lot of years we spent a ton of money on these big events and programs and, you know, we'd have three blow-up jumpers and it may just be that our ministry for a while is instead of doing big blow-up jumpers and big programs, we buy doors. Door ministry here at TGP West. Feeling angry? Just come break our door. Look, Moses wasn't required, it's getting funnier, isn't it? Moses wasn't required to intercede for Israel, but because he loved them, he did. 
Moses interceded for Israel because he loved them. They were his people. And as we can see in the text, it makes all the difference in the world. Before Moses interceded, God was just going to wipe them out and start over with Moses. So before Moses goes down the mountain, God offers to kill them all, just start over. But because Moses loves them, he says, God, please don't do that. And because Moses intercedes, God relents. God puts people in our lives that desperately need us to pray for them, to intercede on their behalf. And it can be the difference in their life. I know for a fact that I can fuss at the community kids here about breaking our doors till I'm blue in the face and it will have zero impact on their lives. And I also know that if I pray, if I intercede for them, things can begin to change. Our prayers are heard by God. And as followers of Christ, it is our call to intercede for one another. I was asked this week um, if I enjoy preaching. And my immediate response was, yeah, I do. And then I started thinking about why. Why do I enjoy it? My, as I thought about it, I realized that why I enjoy this is because I'm passionate about it. And guess where the passion came from? It came from God. When we follow God's direction for our lives, He's going to give us passion for whatever He's called us to. And when we follow that passion, we find joy. Now there's moments where it's not joyful. I was not joyful when the door got broke. But those are momentary fleeting things. And it's God teaching us more and more. When we intercede from someone else, it changes them, but it changes us. I promise you that broken door did more for me than it will ever do for those kids. I think that door got broke for me. I think it got broke for you. When we intercede, it causes us to love people in the way that God loves them. It causes us to see people the way God sees them. This is why Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies. I think when Jesus is saying pray for your enemies, Jesus is not trying to get them fixed. He's trying to get us fixed. This is the kind of people that God's calling us to be. A people that intercede for one another. A people that love each other enough to go the extra mile. Last point I want to make today is how you respond to the covenant you made with God has exponential ramifications. I'm going to break that down in just a minute. Let's look at our last verse of today, verses 15 through 29. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said, Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as they came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they were set on evil. 
For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. And for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and threw it in the fire. And out came this calf. And then Moses, and when Moses saw the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon this day. Responses are significant always. we often fail to realize that our responses affect more than just us. It doesn't matter who you are or what you do, your decisions have an impact on everyone else around you. The reason I say that they have exponential ramifications is that the longer you choose to live in disobedience, the further you're getting from God's will. The further you get from His will, the more it is going to take to get you back on track. Let me say it this way, teachers... How you, you know this to be true. I'm just saying it out loud for everyone who doesn't. How you respond to a disruption in your classroom affects the rest of the day, the month, or possibly the year, right? How you respond. Parents, how you respond to your child's behavior now ultimately will affect the kind of adult that they will be. For anybody that's an employee, which is everyone in this room, how you respond to your coworkers affects the quality of your work. And in turn, how others respond to us determines many things about our lives. I'd be willing to bet there's not a person in this church that couldn't tell me a story about how someone else's decision had a negative impact on their life. Right? All of us can think of a story. I also bet that you had a response to that action. Aaron's decision to give in to the request of the people had a hugely negative impact on every person there, including Moses. Every person. There's something interesting it says at the end of that. I just want to address it so nobody's wondering. Moses tells the Levites, he says, who has, who has not participated in this, basically? And the Levites, which is his clan, his tribe, come up and said, we didn't participate. And he says, get your swords, put them on. Run to and back and forth through the camp. That's how we would say that. And basically what he's saying is, every person that you see that's participating in this idol worship, I want you to kill them. And they did. About 3,000 men fell. There's not a person in that camp whose life wasn't affected by those that chose to disobey God. Because everybody lost somebody. The decisions that we make matter. Moses responds with righteous anger towards Israel and Aaron. They just committed to living in covenant with God. They said all these things God has said we will do. But Moses comes down from the mountain and he finds them worshiping an idol. And he confronts their sin head on. He throws the tablets down, destroys the calf, makes them drink it, which is gross. Okay? If anybody's wondering why that is, think about how it came out once they were done drinking it. Nobody's going for that gold. That gold's gone. Just saying, it's significant. 
But then he goes straight to Aaron and he demands explanation. And Aaron's response cracks me up. You guys laughed when you heard it, right? It makes me laugh because it reminds me of a chi- as a child, right? I was telling uh, Bethany last night, I thought about this story whenever I was reading through this this week. When I was a kid, I was probably, I don't know, 8, 10, somewhere around that age group. And um, my parents' house where I grew up, is there's a creek behind it, and so the soil is really sandy, and it's really easy to dig. And so one day I decided I would dig a hole. And this was a magnificent hole. I mean, as far as holes go, it was nice, right? Like, it was a big hole. As a kid, I could get in it and just barely see out of it. It was a nice hole. I don't know if you've ever had a nice hole, but this was a nice hole, okay? I was proud of this hole um, until my dad came home. My dad came home and saw the hole in the pile of the dirt in the backyard, and he goes, uh, Hey, Will, what's up with that hole? I don't know. I came outside this morning. It was there. I guess an animal dug it. My dad knew me. He knew that telling the truth was not my forte as a child. He also knew that my sisters were not hole diggers. And my little brother was too small at the time. But I was adamant. I didn't dig that hole. That wasn't, that's not my hole. It is a nice hole, but it's not my hole. I wish I'd have dug that hole. I just told them to bring me all their gold and I threw it in a fire and a calf came out. The point is, God knows us. He knows our hearts. He knows our intentions. We can try to lie, make excuses, share the blame. We can do all that until the cows come home and it won't make a bit of difference because God knows. My dad knew that I dug that hole, right? There's no convincing him. As hard as I might try, he knew. He knew it because of deduction, because he knew his son. God knows our sins because he's God. Because he sees directly into our hearts. Moses had a decision to make when he's coming down from the mountain about how he's going to respond to the Israelites. His decision to confront their sin is the role that he was to play as their leader. And it's the most loving thing that he could do. Was to say, what have you done? Sometimes the things that we're called to aren't fun in the moment, but if God has called us to something, you can bet your butt it's essential. If God has called you to something, it's important. For the sake of clarification, our call as believers, specifically for this body, is to love people enough to join God, even when it's hard, so that we can help set people free. We cannot accomplish that call if we are not daily pursuing God with vigilance. If we are not abiding moment by moment through our day. If we're not interceding on behalf of those that God's called us to. If we're not saying yes regardless of what the call is. I love, years ago I read the book Radical by David Platt. And in that book he talks about this idea of writing a blank check. That as God calls, we get out our checkbook and we just sign the check and we hand it to God and say, write in there what you need. That we live our lives in a way that we say, God, what you are calling us to do is more important than anything else in my life. And if we don't do that, we can't join God to set people free. God is calling us to write a blank check. Our response to the covenant that God makes with us needs to be to pursue Him and to love other people. And that's going to require a blank check. It's going to require us saying, God, this is the most important thing in our lives. 
That's it. That's the message. In order for us to join God to set people free, He has to be the most important thing. Israel separated themselves from God and they were led astray very quickly by their own emotions, by their own desires. The same thing will happen for us if we're not daily pursuing the Lord, if we're not writing a blank check. Let's pray. God, it's hard to think about the cost of what it means to be obedient to you. It's scary. It's scary to think that there are things in our lives that we like, that we enjoy, that you may be calling us to to get rid of or to do away with. God, the only way that happens is by you changing us, by you changing our hearts. God, I'm asking for myself that you continue to change my heart, to teach me to love the way that you love and to see the way that you see and to feel what you feel. God, it's my my prayer, it's my passion for my brothers and sisters in this room that you would do the same for them. Father, that we would find our joy not in momentary fleeting things, but that we would find our joy in you. But as we walk with you, we can't help but love for other people, to intercede on other people's behalves. That it's just a natural part of who we are because that's who you've made us to be. Father, do a work in our lives that we cannot do for ourselves. We beg you.